Chapter 38, Part 1 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 38 Reign and Conversion of Clovis. His Victories over the Alemanni. Burgundians and Visigoths. Establishment of the French Monarchy in Gaul. Laws of the Barbarians, State of the Romans, the Visigoths of Spain, Conquest of Britain by the Saxons. The Gauls, who impatiently supported the Roman yoke, received a memorable lesson from one of the lieutenants of Vespasian, whose weighty sense has been refined and expressed by the genius of Tacitus. The protection of the Republic has delivered Gaul from internal discord and foreign invasions, by the loss of national independence, you have acquired the name and privileges of Roman citizens. You enjoy, in common with ourselves, the permanent benefits of civil government, and your remote situation is less exposed to the accidental mischiefs of tyranny. Instead of exercising the rights of conquest, we have been contented to impose such tributes as are requisite for your own preservation. Peace cannot be secured without armies and armies must be supported at the expense of the people. It is for your sake, not for our own, that we guard the barrier of the Rhine against the ferocious Germans, who have so often attempted, and who will always desire, to exchange the solitude of their woods and morasses for the wealth and fertility of Gaul. The fall of Rome would be fatal to the provinces, and you would be buried in the ruins of that mighty fabric which has been raised by the valor and wisdom of eight hundred years. Your imaginary freedom would be insulted and impressed by a savage master, and the expulsion of the Romans would be succeeded by the eternal hostilities of the barbarian conquerors. This salutary advice was accepted, and this strange prediction was accomplished. In the space of four hundred years, the hardy Gauls, who had encountered the arms of Caesar, were imperceptibly melted into the general mass of citizens and subjects. The Western Empire was dissolved and the Germans who had passed the Rhine fiercely contended for the possession of Gaul, and excited the contempt or abhorrence of its peaceful and polished inhabitants. With that conscious pride which the preeminence of knowledge and luxury seldom fails to inspire, they derided the hairy and gigantic savages of the north, their rustic manners, dissonant joy, voracious appetite, and their horrid appearance, equally disgusting to the sight and to the smell. The liberal studies were still cultivated in the schools of Autun and Bordeaux, and the language of Cicero and Virgil was familiar to the Gallic youth. Their ears were astonished by the harsh and unknown sounds of the Germanic dialect, and they ingeniously lamented that the trembling muses fled from the harmony of a Burgundian lyre. The Gauls were endowed with all the advantages of art and nature, but, as they wanted courage to defend them, they were justly condemned to obey, and even to flatter, the victorious barbarians by whose clemency they held their precarious fortunes and their lives. As soon as Odoacer had extinguished the Western Empire, he sought the friendship of the most powerful of the barbarians. The new sovereign of Italy resigned to Yorick, king of the Visigoths, all the Roman conquests beyond the Alps, and as far as the Rhine and the ocean, and the Senate might confirm this liberal gift with some ostentation of power, and without any real loss of revenue or dominion. 
the lawful pretensions of Uric were justified by ambition and success, and the Gothic nation might aspire under his command to the monarchy of Spain and Gaul. Arles and Marseilles surrendered to his arms. He oppressed the freedom of Auvergne, and the bishop condescended to purchase his recall from exile by a tribute of just but reluctant praise. Sidonius waited before the gates of the palace among a crowd of ambassadors and suppliants, and their various business at the court of Bordeaux attested the power and the renown of the king of the Visigoths. The Heruli of the distant ocean, who painted their naked bodies with its cerulean color, implored his protection, and the Saxons respected the maritime provinces of a prince who was destitute of any naval force. The tall Burgundians submitted to his authority, nor did he restore the captive Franks till he had imposed on that fierce nation the terms of an unequal peace. The Vandals of Africa cultivated his useful friendship, and the Ostrogoths of Pannonia were supported by his powerful aid against the oppression of the neighboring Huns. The North, such are the lofty strains of the poet, was agitated or appeased by the nod of Uric. The great king of Persia consulted the oracle of the West, and the aged god of the Tiber was protected by the swelling genius of the Garonne. The fortune of nations has often depended on accidents, and France may ascribe her greatness to the premature death of the Gothic king, at a time when his son Alaric was a helpless infant, and his adversary Clovis an ambitious and valiant youth. While Childeric, the father of Clovis, lived in exile in Germany, he was hospitably entertained by the queen as well as by the king of the Thuringians. After his restoration, Bafina escaped from her husband's bed to the arms of her lover, freely declaring that, if she had known a man wiser, stronger, or more beautiful than Childeric, that man should have been the object of her preference. Clovis was the offspring of this voluntary union, and when he was no more than fifteen years of age, he succeeded, by his father's death, to the command of the Salian tribe. The narrow limits of his kingdom were confined to the island of the Batavians, with the ancient diocese of Tournay and Arras, and the, at the baptism of Clovis the number of his warriors could not exceed five thousand. The kindred tribes of the Franks, who had seated themselves along the Belgic rivers, the Scheldt, the Meuse, the Moselle, and the Rhine, were governed by their independent kings of the Merovingian race, the equals, the allies, and sometimes the enemies of the Salic prince. But the Germans, who obeyed in peace the hereditary jurisdiction of their chiefs, was, were free to follow the standard of a popular and victorious general. And the superior merit of Clovis attracted the respect and allegiance of the national confederacy. When he first took the field, he had neither gold and silver in his coffers, nor wine and corn in his magazines. But he imitated the example of Caesar, who in the same country had acquired wealth by the sword, and purchased soldiers with the fruits of conquest. After each successful battle or expedition, the spoils were accumulated in one common mass. Every warrior received his proportionable share, and the royal prerogative submitted to the equal regulations of military law. The untamed spirit of the barbarians was taught to acknowledge the advantages of regular discipline. At the annual review of the month of March, their arms were diligently inspected, and when they traversed a peaceful territory, they were prohibited from touching a blade of grass. The justice of Clovis was inexorable, and his careless or disobedient soldiers were punished with instant death.
it would be superfluous to praise the valor of a Frank, but the valor of Clovis was directed by cool and consummate prudence. In all his transactions with mankind he calculated the weight of interest, of passion, and of opinion, and his manners were sometimes adapted to the sanguinary measures of the Germans, and sometimes moderated by the milder genius of Rome and Christianity. He was intercepted in the career of victory, since he died in the forty-fifth year of his age, but he had already accomplished, in a reign of thirty years, the establishment of the French monarchy in Gaul. The first exploit of Clovis was the defeat of Syagrius, the son of Aegidius, and the public quarrel might on this occasion be inflamed by private resentment. The glory of the father still insulted the Merovingian race. The power of the son might excite the jealous ambition of the king of the Franks. Syagrius inherited, as a patrimonial estate, the city and diocese of Soissons, the desolate remnant of the second Belgic, Reims and Troyes, Beauvais and Amiens, would naturally submit to the count or patrician, and after the dissolution of the Western Empire, he might reign with the title, or at least with the authority, of King of the Romans. As a Roman, he had been educated in the liberal studies of rhetoric and jurisprudence, but he was engaged by accident and policy in the familiar use of the Germanic idiom. The independent barbarians resorted to the tribunal of a stranger who possessed the singular talent of explaining, in their native tongue, the dictates of reason and equity. The diligence and affability of their judge rendered him popular. The impartial wisdom of his decrees obtained their voluntary obedience, and the reign of Siagrius over the Franks and Burgundians seemed to revive the original institution of civil society. In the midst of these peaceful occupations, Siagrius received and boldly accepted the hostile defiance of Clovis, who challenged his rival in the spirit, and almost in the language of chivalry, to appoint the day and the field of battle. In the time of Caesar, Soissons would have poured forth a body of fifty thousand horse, and such an army might have been plentifully supplied with shields, cuirasses, and military engines from the three arsenals or manufacturers of the city. But the courage and the numbers of the Gallic youth were long since exhausted and the loose bands of volunteers or mercenaries who marched under the standard of Syagrius were incapable of contending with the national valor of the Franks. It would be ungenerous, without some more accurate knowledge of his strength and resources, to condemn the rapid flight of Syagrius, who escaped, after the loss of a battle, to the distant court of Toulouse. The feeble minority of Alaric could not assist or protect an unfortunate fugitive. The pusillanimous Goths were intimidated by the menaces of Clovis, and the Roman king, after a short confinement, was delivered into the hands of the executioner. The Belgic cities surrendered to the king of the Franks, and his dominions were enlarged to the east by the ample diocese of Tongres, which Clovis subdued in the, in the tenth year of his reign. The name of the Alamanni has been absurdly derived from their imaginary settlements on the banks of the Laman Lake. That fortunate district, from the lake to Avench to, and Mount Jura, was occupied by the Burgundians. The northern parts of Helvetia had indeed been subdued by the ferocious Alemanni, who destroyed with their own hands the fruit of their conquest. A province, improved and adorned by the arts of Rome, was again reduced to a savage wilderness. And some vestige of the stately Vindenissa may still be discovered in the fertile and populous valley of the Arar. 
From the source of the Rhine to his conflux with the Maine and the Moselle, the formidable swarms of the Alemanni commanded either side of the river by the right of ancient possession or recent victory. They spread themselves into Gaul over the modern provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, and their bold invasion of the kingdom of Cologne summoned the Salic prince to the defense of his Ripurian allies. Clovis encountered the invaders of Gaul in the plain of Tobiac, about twenty-four miles from Cologne, and the two fiercest nations of Germany were mutually animated by the memory of past exploits and the prospect of future greatness. The Franks, after an obstinate struggle, gave way, and the Alemanni, raising a shout of victory, impetuously pressed the retreat. But the battle was restored by the valor, the conduct, and perhaps by the piety of Clovis, and the event of the bloody day decided forever the alternative of empire or servitude. The last king of the Alemanni was slain in the field, and his people were slaughtered and pursued till they threw down their arms and yielded to the mercy of the conqueror. Without discipline, it was impossible for them to rally. They had contemptuously demolished the walls and fortifications which might have protected their distress, and they were followed into the heart of their forests by an enemy not less active or intrepid than themselves. The great Theodoric congratulated the victory of Clovis, whose sister, Albofleda, the king of Italy, had lately married. But he mildly interceded with his brother in favor of the suppliants and fugitives who implored his protection. The Gallic territories, which were possessed by the Alemanni, became the prize of their conqueror, and the haughty nation, invincible or rebellious to the arms of Rome, acknowledged the sovereignty of the Merovingian kings, who graciously permitted them to enjoy their peculiar manners and institutions under the government of official and at length of hereditary dukes. After the conquest of the western provinces, the Franks alone maintained their ancient habitations beyond the Rhine. They gradually subdued and civilized the exhausted countries as far as the Elbe and the mountains of Bohemia, and the peace of Europe was secured by the obedience of Germany. Till the thirtieth year of his age, Clovis continued to worship the gods of his ancestors. His disbelief, or rather disregard of Christianity, might encourage him to pillage with less remorse the churches of an hostile territory. But his subjects of Gaul enjoyed the free exercise of religious worship, and the bishops entertained a more favorable hope of the idolater than of the heretics. The Merovingian prince had contracted a fortunate alliance with the fair Clotilda, the niece of the king of the Burgundy, who in the midst of an Arian court was educated in the profession of the Catholic faith. It was her interest, as well as her duty, to achieve the conversion of a pagan husband, and Clovis insensibly listened to the voice of love and religion. He consented, perhaps such terms had been previously stipulated, to the baptism of his eldest son, and though the sudden death of the infant excited some superstitious fears, he was persuaded a second time to repeat the dangerous experiment. In the distress of the Battle of Tolbiac, Clovis loudly invoked the god of Clotilda and of the Christians, and the victory disposed him to hear, with respectful gratitude, the eloquent Remigius, the bishop of Rheim, who forcefully displayed the temporal and spiritual advantages of his conversion. The king declared himself satisfied of the truth of the Catholic faith, and the political reasons which might have suspended his public professions were removed by the devout or loyal acclamations of the Franks, 
who showed themselves alike prepared to follow their heroic leader to the field of battle or to the baptismal font. The important ceremony was performed in the Cathedral of Rheims with every circumstance of magnificence and solemnity which could impress an awful sense of religion on the minds of its rude proselytes. The new Constantine was immediately baptized with three thousand of his warlike subjects, and their example was imitated by the remainder of the gentle barbarians, who, in obedience to the victorious prelate, adored the cross which they had burnt, and burnt the idols which they had formerly adored. The mind of Clovis was susceptible of transient fervor. He was exasperated by the pathetic tale of the passion and death of Christ, and instead of weighing the salutary consequences of that mysterious sacrifice, he exclaimed with indiscreet fury, Had I been present, at the head of my valiant Franks, I would have revenged his injuries. But the savage conqueror of Gaul was incapable of examining the proofs of a religion which depends on the laborious investigation of historic evidence and speculative theology. He was still more incapable of feeling the mild influence of the gospel which persuades and purifies the heart of a genuine convert. His ambitious reign was a perpetual violation of moral and Christian duties. His hands were stained with blood in peace as well as in war. And as soon as Clovis had dismissed a synod of the Gallican church, he calmly assassinated all the princes of the Merovingian race. Yet the king of the Franks might sincerely worship the Christian God as a being more excellent and powerful than his national deities, and the signal deliverance and victory of Tolbiac encouraged Clovis to confide in the future protection of the Lord of Hosts. Martin, the most popular of the saints, had filled the western world with the fame of those miracles which were incessantly performed at his holy sepulchre of Tours. His visible or invisible aid promoted the cause of a liberal and orthodox prince, and the profane remark of Clovis himself that St. Martin was an expensive friend need not be interpreted as a symptom of any permanent or rational skepticism. But earth, as well as heaven, rejoiced in the conversion of the Franks. On the memorable day which Clovis ascended from the baptismal font, he alone in the Christian world deserved the name and prerogatives of a Catholic king. The emperor, Anastasius, entertained some dangerous errors concerning the nature of the divine incarnation. And the barbarians of Africa, Italy, Spain, and Gaul were involved in the Arian heresy. The eldest, or rather the only son of the church, was acknowledged by the clergy as their lawful sovereign or glorious deliverer, and the arms of Clovis were strenuously supported by the zeal in favor of the Catholic faction. Under the Roman Empire, the wealth and jurisdiction of the bishops, their sacred character and perpetual office, their numerous dependents, popular eloquence, and provincial assemblies had rendered them always respectable and sometimes dangerous. Their influence was augmented with the progress of superstition, and the establishment of the French monarchy may, in some degree, be ascribed to the firm alliance of a hundred prelates, who reigned in the discontented or independent cities of Gaul. The slight foundations of the Amorican Republic had been repeatedly shaken or overthrown, but the same people still guarded their domestic freedom, asserted the dignity of the Roman name, and bravely resisted the predatory inroads and regular attacks of Clovis, who labored to extend his conquests from the Seine to the Loire. Their successful opposition introduced an equal and honorable union. 
the Franks esteemed the valor of the Amoricans, and the Amoricans were reconciled by the religion of the Franks. The military force which had been stationed for the defense of Gaul consisted of one hundred different bands of cavalry or infantry, and these troops, while they assumed the title and privileges of Roman soldiers, were renewed by an incessant supply of the barbarian youth. The extreme fortifications and scattered fragments of the empire were still defended by their hopeless courage, but their retreat was intercepted, and their communication was impracticable. They were abandoned by the Greek princes of Constantinople, and they piously disclaimed all connections with the Aryan usurpers of Gaul. They accepted, without shame or reluctance, the generous capitulation which was proposed by a Catholic hero, and this spurious or legitimate progeny of the Roman legions were distinguished in the succeeding age by their arms, their ensigns, and their peculiar dress and institutions. But the national strength was increased by these powerful and voluntary accessions, and the neighboring kingdoms dreaded the numbers as well as the spirit of the Franks. The reduction of the northern provinces of Gaul, instead of being decided by the chance of a single battle, appears to have been slowly effected by the gradual operation of war and treaty, and Clovis acquired each object of his ambition by such efforts or such concessions as were adequate to its real value. His savage character and the virtues of Henry the Fourth suggest the most opposite ideas of human nature. Yet some resemblance may be found in the situation of two princes who conquered France by their valor, their policy, and the merits of a seasonable conversion. The kingdom of the Burgundians, which was defined by the course of two Gallic rivers, the Saint and the Rhone, ex extended from the forests of Vos to the Alps and the Sea of Marseille. The scepter was in the hands of Gundobald. That valiant and ambitious prince had reduced the number of royal candidates by the death of two brothers, one of whom was the father of Clotilda. But his imperfect prudence still permitted Godesgil, the youngest of his brothers, to possess the dependent principality of Geneva. The Arian monarch was justly alarmed by the satisfaction and the hopes which seemed to animate his clergy and people after the conversion of Clovis, and Gundobald convened at Lyon an assembly of his bishops to reconcile, if it were possible, their religious and political discontents. A vain conference was agitated between the two factions. The Arians upbraided the Catholics for the worship of three gods. The Catholics defended their cause by theological distinctions, and the usual arguments, objections, and replies were reverberated with obstinate clamor, till the king revealed his secret apprehensions by an abrupt but decisive question, which he addressed to the orthodox bishops. If you truly profess the Christian religion, why do you not restrain the king of the Franks? He has declared war against me, and forms alliances with my enemies for my destruction. A sanguinary and covetous mind is not the symptom of a sincere conversion. Let him show his faith by his works. The answer of Avitus, bishop of Vienne, who spoke in the name of his brethren, was delivered with the voice and countenance of an angel. We are ignorant of the motives and intentions of the king of the Franks, but we are taught by scripture that the kingdoms which abandon the divine law are frequently subverted, and that the enemies will arise on every side against those who have made God their enemy. Return with thy people to the law of God, and he will give peace and security to thy dominions. The king of Burgundy, 
who was not prepared to accept the condition which the Catholics considered as essential to the treaty, delayed and dismissed the ecclesiastical conference, after reproaching his bishops that Clovis, their friend and proselyte, had privately attempted the allegiance of his brother. End of chapter 38, part 1